Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Movie Geeks United. August 12th, 1988, one of the most scandalous films ever released by a major studio was unleashed upon a handful of screens and protesters stood at the ready to undermine its chances of success. The battle had begun many years earlier. The book on which it was based was released to a firestorm of controversy in 1955. An initial attempt to produce the film was aborted in 1983 due to its potential for scandal and once the project officially entered production a few years later, the evangelical movement rejuvenated their ambitious plans to denounce its existence. Across the world, the release of The Last Temptation of Christ was met by mass boycotts, protests, bomb threats, and actual fire bombings during its run in France. Director Martin Scorsese had attempted to craft an empathetic and relatable portrait of Jesus, but his deviations from the strictest interpretations of religious text were met by an international chorus of vociferous revolt. Professor Thomas Lindloff examines all of this and so much more in his astounding book, Hollywood Under Siege, Martin Scorsese, The Religious Right, and The Culture Wars, the ambitions of both the filmmaker and his detractors, the plight of those who felt misrepresented on screen, Universal Studios' pledge to protect the First Amendment rights of its artists, and the ultimate lessons we can glean from the controversies surrounding the film. And how will the film itself be remembered? As a prime example of faith-affirming cinema, or as an ominous warning to other filmmakers who dare to offer personal interpretations of the Gospels? We spoke to Professor Lindloff in connection to the 30th anniversary of Scorsese's groundbreaking work. In the summer of 1988, when the film came out, I was living in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm a professor at the University of Kentucky, and at that time I was living there. And uh, I was looking forward to seeing Last Temptation, because I'd always been a big fan of Scorsese. And uh, I can't say I was particularly religious at the time, but I've always had an amateur interest in so-called historical Jesus studies. So this just looked fa fascinating. Um uh, Mm -hmm. And then, um, before the film got to the city, an anti-Last Temptation campaign broke out in Lexington. And at the time, the Lowe's Theater chain owned all the screens in town. And uh, after a lot of pressure that was put on Lowe's, they decided not to release it in Lexington. And it didn't come to the nearest cities, Louisville or Cincinnati, so I was deprived of the opportunity to see Last Temptation. On the big screen, anyway. Mm -hmm. A little bit, a little bit later on, I was able to get a VHS copy at the local uh, video rental store, and I watched it, and I saw that uh, it was a serious film um, with uh, you know incredible artistic value. I was really impressed with it, and so my interest was piqued about why this film inspired such a tempest, you know, such inflamed passions, and, and why so many people found it threatening. In fact. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. ultimately why I couldn't, you know, why I couldn't see it in Lexington. I grew up in Lakeland, Florida, and uh, the movie came out when I was uh, just about to turn 15. And, so, and I was aware of Scorsese. I loved uh -huh. the movies of his that I had seen, but it didn't come to me, uh, to my town. But even so, I, I do remember hearing a story before it was released that, that uh, a local church uh, – congregation went to one of the theaters in town and threatened to burn their theater down if they showed it. Uh, and they had no intention of showing it anyway, but I thought it was an interesting threat. I mean, the film, um, after it came out, uh, there were lots of people that were quite upset about it, and particularly church congregations um, of event evangelical Christians, and, uh, you know, after the release, there were public protests at dozens of theaters across the country, like the one that you were talking about, involving literally tens of thousands of people. Uh, there was chaos, pandemonium in many instances. In my, in my book, I document all sorts of tactics to try to intimidate and confuse moviegoers, theater managers, employees, and even disrupt the business of the theater itself. Now, actually, some of these, as I mentioned in the book, were adapted from 
the uh, anti-abortion protests at clinics that were widespread in the 1980s. You know, some of the same mm. uh, strategies and uh, techniques were applied uh, to protest the last temptation opening, including, as you mentioned, uh, the possibility of property damage through bombings and. Uh, so there was, you know, there was abusive behavior by protesters, bomb threats. Um, although, to be fair and accurate about it, uh, the great majority of those who protested the film did so quietly and sincerely and, you know, really without even a hint of violence. I'm against censorship, but that doesn't put down the fact that uh, they're out here maligning our Lord and our Savior. And we're out here sticking up for him. We've read the reviews. Oh. Oh. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. We hear a lot today how Hollywood is out of touch with the common man or in this case with what audiences of religious affiliation want to see. Uh, Do you think that minds, was that mindset really mainstream before last temptation or did did it kind of crescendo with last temptation? Well, it was there before last temptation. Uh, You know, the religious right, um, you know, in many ways was uh, offended by the film, but it was uh, sort of a culmination of many perceived slights over the years. And uh, there were already quite a few morality and media and media watchdog groups that had formed on the conservative uh, Christian side. And, you know, there were particularly, for example, a group called American Family Association, which was really concerned about sexuality on television. And, um, there was already a sense that Hollywood was not very welcoming to people of faith and uh, Mm. that in fact uh, sometimes the studios did things, uh, you know, develop projects with a specific intent of trying to create controversy and uh, not paying too much attention to whom am I harm or whose sensibilities might be offended. First I fasted for three months. I even whipped myself before I went to sleep. At first it worked. Then the pain came back. And the voices. They called me by name. Jesus. To, to go back to the origins of this, I mean, it's it's obviously based on a, the Kazantzakis book. Tell me about the level of controversy that met the release of that book. Well, um, this was a book that um, was written, as you say, by Nikos Kazantzakis, uh, actually a significant literary figure of the 20th century. Uh, he was once a finalist for the Nobel Prize. And uh, it was... Uh, it was a book that um, you know was exploring how Jesus could be both human and divine, and what that was like. The dual nature of, of Christ is an article of faith in the Christian doctrine, but it's always somewhat abstract, and if it's questioned at all, it's usually discussed in intellectual terms. And Kazantzakis realized that in practical terms, a person really couldn't be fully human and fully divine, um, or at least if 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 that could be possible, then you know exactly how would that operate? Uh, how would somebody live in the world? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the Kazantzakis came up with this idea of a Jesus who gradually learns who he is meant to be, what his mission is supposed to be, who has doubts about whether he's the one to fulfill this destiny, often fighting it. In the novel, God talks to him from... Uh, through animate beings, inanimate things, whispers to him through the wind, goads him, pesters him. Uh, meanwhile, is being tested by Satan. And so, again, what does that mean concretely? How would he be tempted with power, with pleasures of the flesh? Certainly, all those and more. But he was, he was, if he was fully God, could he just shrug those things off? You know, end the story. Mm-hmm. But but he isn't fully God. He's a man becoming the Son of God. So Jesus must come very very close to experiencing those things: power, pride, sexuality, and he has to gain a sense of what he's missing. So a temptation, uh, the temptations that Kazantzakis uh, describes in the book are a taste of what it means to to uh, sin. But it's not a sin in itself. I won't let you. No, I won't let you. Please, I beg you, Judas, don't get in the way. What way? 
What's happening? Who's doing I'm this? Struggling. With who? I don't know. I'm struggling. No. I struggle. You collaborate. The last temptation, of course, is to renounce his destiny to die on the cross. So anyway, all, all that is, is um, I wouldn't say it's a uh, stark deviation from the Gospels, because he used the Gospels as a foundation for these fictional explorations. But the explorations themselves um, were anathema you know, to, to uh, particularly um, orthodox Catholics who... Uh, felt that uh, anything but a strict adherence to to um, the orthodox beliefs of the church were were problematic and so the the, yeah. the book was um, uh, put on the list of forbidden books of the Catholic Church um, the book did sell relatively well in Europe and the United States over the 1960s uh, it got pretty good reviews but in um, particularly Southern California, but some other places in the United States, uh, there were some librarians who are actually uh, not so much librarians, but city councils and other municipal authorities that felt the book didn't belong in in, uh, in libraries. And so there were uh, campaigns, um, as I said, particularly in Southern California, to try to get the book removed from, from local libraries. So it was a very controversial book. You know, through the 1960s, um, even some isolated protests of uh, libraries in the 1970s. So there was always that that kind of history of of a book being of the book being somewhat um, subversive. I love the section of your book where you uh, write about how it's the book first came to Scorsese's attention. Um, because it happened on the uh, on the set of his first, uh, uh, I guess you would call it legitimate film under Roger Corman's banner, uh, right. Boxcar Bertha, and it was amazing to me because I I had missed Boxcar Bertha and I just watched it uh, a month or two ago, and so when I when I read this chapter of your book, and you were highlighting the kind of it, 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 the, the religious uh, allegory that was going on in Boxcar Bertha that mirror what occurs in Last Temptation many years later, I thought, oh my right. gosh, he's absolutely right. And I, I had to rethink that movie. But uh, Barbara Hershey was the one that first uh, led Scorsese on to this project, wasn't she? That's right. Uh, they were having uh, discussions about Faith and religion and God um, during downtimes on the set, and uh, as they were socializing when uh, off off camera. So um, she said, I, "I'd read this uh, book called The Last Temptation of Christ. You really should read this book." In fact, she uh, even emphasized that he should make the film, adapted for the screen. So um, after the film. Uh, Boscar Bertho uh, wrapped uh, later on in Hollywood. Uh, they got together. That is uh, David Carradine and Barbara Hershey, who were both in Boscar Bertha, with Scorsese, and uh, she gave him a copy of the book. And uh, it took him you know, several years to read the book. Um, in talking with Marty, um, I confirmed the fact that <laughs> he doesn't always read very quickly. In fact, sometimes it takes him. Uh, a uh, fairly long period of time to finish uh, books, but he he was very uh, assiduous about uh, reading that book over a period of two or three years. He he finally finished reading it and decided that that was the sort of material that he wanted to work with in in making a film about Jesus, which he had been wanting to do literally for fifteen or twenty years. He, I mean, since he was. Mm-hmm. Going to see biblical epics as as a child in New York City, um, he had always had an interest in in that as a subject matter, and had been wanting to make a film um, of of some kind that would uh, that would uh, feature the life of Jesus. But yes, Barbara Hershey was the one that uh, initiated uh, Marty to Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, the, uh, he really is the perfect. He really was the perfect director to handle this material i believe because there are themes that he he's been grappling with 
in almost every movie he's made, uh, you know, a lot of great directors say uh, we're we're only really making different versions of the same movie. <laughs> you know, I, I hear I hear Scorsese saying that, and Woody Allen, and you know, on and on and on. Uh, what he wanted to do, I think, is being raised in kind of a strict Catholic home and and growing up on the biblical epics that depict Christ as an unknowable, unrelatable deity, he right. he wanted something that made Jesus and his his struggle more relatable and, and human. Um, did he know that just the nature of undertaking that approach would uh, would mire him in controversy? Did, was he expecting a level of controversy? He was expecting a level of controversy, but I think he um, underestimated uh, the degree of controversy that it would spark. I, uh, uh, he's mentioned this in several uh, interviews and other publications, and I had a chance to talk to him about what his expectations were. He definitely wanted to stir discussion about the, the nature of Jesus and faith and uh and making Jesus more relatable that uh, mm. people would realize that uh here is someone who faces the same issues, the same doubts, the same uncertainties, the same fears and frustrations that I do, and uh if Jesus can make it, so can I. I that was a little bit of the impetus of jesus of of uh, scorsese in in developing last temptation rather than other material. Um, I have to say, though, that this Kazusakis novel um, is probably a little bit different from that. I mean, there is a little bit more emphasis in the Kazusakis novel on Jesus uh, simply trying to learn who he is and not so much on on uh, how uh, forgiving and uh, Generous with his faith, uh, Jesus is in, in Last Temptation. But certainly, uh, Scorsese was was hoping that Last Temptation would draw people to the theater that don't go to church. Uh, would draw people to the theater to uh, to discuss, um, you know, faith and Christianity and Jesus um, in, in many venues after they after they saw the film. He tempered somewhat. Uh some of the more extreme aspects of, of Schrader's screenplay, didn't he? Yeah, there were some really interesting scenes that Schrader had written for uh, the screenplay, the adaptation, um, that uh, Marty thought really would be going too far. Um, yeah. And so, and, so, and so a few of those were, were taken out. That Not that many. Um after Schrader turned in his screenplay um, a little while later, just before uh, Paramount got involved, uh, Jay Cox, a longtime collaborator with Scorsese, and Marty got together and they did a revision, actually several revisions within a short period of time. And uh, they just sort of um, polished some of the dialogue and... Um, Took took out of a few of the scenes that that Schrader had included that was somewhat problematic. But uh, yeah, I, I mm-hmm. think of those scenes that uh, Schrader um, wrote that were a little bit uh, beyond the pale. It had stayed in the film. It would have been a little bit <laughs> a little bit edgier than than it already was. Yeah, absolutely. And we we love Schrader on our show we've we've had him on the show a couple of times but uh and he is another one like Scorsese who uh who who makes different versions of the same movie <laughs> and and I I, lo- I love him <laughs> for it so it, it, this almost happened uh several years before 87 88 uh, uh under a different studio and with a different star right that's right. Uh, the film was originally going to be made by Paramount, um, and uh, this was during uh, the period in which Barry Diller was head of, of, of Paramount, the, the entire company, which was uh, Gulf and Western was the parent company of Paramount, and uh, Michael Eisner was the 
president of the studio. Jeffrey Katzenberg was president of production. So it was uh, it was sort of a, a golden era of sorts at Paramount. They were producing a lot of uh, so-called high-concept films at the time and doing quite well, as a matter of fact. And uh, so they thought that uh, Last Temptation of Christ would be a, a very interesting film to add to its slate. Um, certainly not, you know in the same category as Saturday Night Fever or, or or some of the other films that they were producing, you know, during the late 70s or 1980s, but a film that could uh, be a prestige project uh, in which they might be able to develop a relationship with Scorsese, um, ultimately. Yeah. And uh, so um, they gave the green light to, to make uh, Last Temptation, and uh, this was uh, early 1983, and for the next 10 or 11 months, just uh, a whole number of things begin to uh, occur that uh, led to the unraveling of the project and the ultimate cancellation of the project. In uh, December of 1983, after uh, approximately $2 million had already been spent and sets had been constructed in Israel and Scorsese and uh, the cast were just about to go to uh, Israel to begin shooting, but uh, Aidan Quinn was originally going to be play uh, Jesus in the film. Uh, most of the other cast members that were um, auditioned or read for parts or were, were signed on to the film in '83, such as Harvey Keitel as Judas and Barbara Hershey for uh, Mary Magdalene. You know, continued in the 1988 production, but. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a tumultuous year for Scorsese because uh, it looked like he was going to be able to make his passion project. But because of the uh, budget exploding and um, mm-hmm. there were a number of other issues concerning um, a lot of negative reaction that the studio was already getting, not so much in the press, but uh, from a number of groups that had already begun to hear rumors about the last nation of Christ and were spreading the word and uh, the studio was receiving thousands of um, uh, protesting letters every week and phone calls, and uh, the studio management, particularly Barry Diller, just didn't want to deal with that. So it was uh, it, it was an, an abortive attempt to make Last Temptation. It got relatively far in the development, but uh, it, it didn't go all the way. And unfortunately, that uh, created problems for Scorsese trying to make Last Temptation after that happened. Because uh, mm-hmm. naturally, other studios wouldn't want to go through that kind of ordeal. <clears throat> the the project had a lot of baggage before it even got off the ground. Uh, oh, and yeah. you know, it, it, it's interesting to me how you know how I read it in your book is that Scorsese knew that if he ever had an opportunity to make it, that he would pretty much have to make it guerrilla style. And so yes. he took up uh, a movie like After Hours. Uh, to kind of rev that engine, to kind of prove to himself that, uh, all right, this is how I'm going to do it. This is going to, how I'm going to have to do it if it ever gets going. Very much so. Uh, he had to make uh, after hours um, just very efficiently, and he had to work with uh, a relatively small crew and um, sort of like Last Temptation, you know, not work with a big star, but, uh, you know, make a film that, had uh, a really strong story, a compelling story, and uh, had some interesting elements to it. So yeah, that was that was a good training ground for Last Temptation. Um, I would also have to say that uh, Scorsese's earlier experience doing uh, Boxcar Bertha for Roger Corman, and before that, Who's Knocking at uh, at My Door, uh, films like that, which were also done uh, very cheaply and uh, very efficiently, also it was was uh, you know, very useful when Scorsese decided that Last Temptation had to be made on a shoestring budget. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it looks very good on the screen. I mean, <laughs> and it was shot in in Morocco, and, but it only cost about seven million dollars to make. I mean, by today's mm. uh, standards, I guess that would be maybe a twenty-five, thirty million dollar film. But uh, it uh, it. it Still went a little bit over budget, but not very much. But it was uh, it was very tough to get it um, greenlit by Universal. In the book, I go through all the different factors that made it possible for Universal to say yes to Marty on this film. Um, 
the fact that Marty was uh, being backed by um, Tom Pollock at uh, at Universal, who was interested in in doing some controversial projects. Um, the Scorsese was now being represented by Michael Ovitz at at the time. Mike Ovitz was one of the most uh, powerful people in Hollywood. He had, uh, with several others, had formed uh, CAA and had uh, created this amazing talent powerhouse and was actually uh, getting very much involved in in developing and selling projects to studios. And so, you know, Marty told Michael Ovitz, um, yes, uh, I would like for you to help me uh, realize my dreams. Uh, to be, I'd like you to represent me. But the one thing I really want to do is make Last Temptation of Christ. And yeah. so Ovitz, you know, approached Tom Pollock, and Pollock, uh, you know, did a, a few uh, things financially to make it uh, possible for that to happen. Uh, if you had to pick one person that uh, really propelled it forward, it was Ovitz, right? Pretty much. Um, Ovitz, uh, again, had a lot of clout, and... Um, he was interested in, in Scorsese because he realized that uh, Scorsese was capable of making uh, films that could, you know, generate uh, not only um, potential Academy Award nominations and winners for studios, but also successful films. Scorsese yeah. had just made the, the Color of Money you know, right after after hours. The Color of Money with uh, Paul Newman and uh, Tom Cruise, who were both. Uh, CAA um, talent, and uh, so it, it was apparent to Obitz that this is somebody who would uh, be able to be very valuable in uh, not only uh, generating uh, revenues for studios, but also in uh, being able to utilize other uh, people within the CAA uh, orbit, other actors, other other writers, other people that uh, might work with Scorsese. So, yeah, Ovitz was very instrumental in making that project happen. They really, they were so desperate to be at the Martin Scorsese business that, you know, there's always that phrase, one for them, one for me. But they were willing to right. accept that they would, the first project would be one for him, and then hopefully future products projects would be for them. Uh, so that that was a that was a bold uh, decision, I I think. That's right, um, and Pollock pointed that out to me. That um, typically, like in the case of Steven Spielberg, uh, Spielberg had made a number of had, had had a number of hits with Universal, and when he was interested in making Schindler's List, um, he had already delivered for them. And Scorsese arrives at Universal, and he hadn't made. Um, any successful films for for Universal? He'd never done a Universal film before, so uh, this is putting the cart before the horse. Actually, uh, he was given the opportunity to make a um, a film that uh, no other studio would touch, and a film that uh, you know almost every other studio, being as risk averse as it is, would would have to realize that there could be some danger in going into this territory. But uh, yeah. Again, I think that Tom Pollock was a little bit of an unusual studio head at the time. He was given <laughs> enormous latitude as well to pick projects by uh, uh, Lou Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg, who, who ran MCA. And uh, they just said basically Pollock would be able to pick the projects and he'd be judged on the outcome. Yeah. Um, and uh, Wasserman was actually... He wasn't involved in the management of the crisis later on in the summer of, of 1988, but he certainly helped um, shore up um, support for Scorsese and uh, never backed away from the release of the film, even when there was just enormous pressure for Universal uh, to do that because uh, there was some fear that the parent company, MCA, could be in some financial peril if it continued to back a film that was hated by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And, you know, mm -hmm. there was, there, there were some credible threats of boycotts against MCA and it's, it's varied assets. And, uh, but, uh, you know, Wasserman w was, uh, someone who, who did trust that, uh, Pollock would make the right decision. 
yeah, he stuck by his creative team, and that's that's really heartening, at least in in this uh, case. You know, with looking at Scorsese today, it's such a great period of time for him because he's never had higher budgets or higher grosses than he has than he has the past <laughs> decade or so. It's kind of an amazing uh, last phase right. run that he's on. Uh, but mm-hmm. as you said, this this movie was done. Uh, on the for a biblical epic on the relative cheap side in Morocco with a largely non-English speaking crew it's interesting to me how he would be living with this book for 15 16 years when it finally gets time to shoot it you got to do it as quickly as as possible uh right. it, it, it did did you get a a sense of did he feel defeated? Did he feel that he wasn't accomplishing the vision he'd had in his head all those years as he was doing it? I think that he felt that uh, he was being able to achieve what he wanted to because everything had been plotted out, all the setups, all the scenes in meticulous detail before they got to Morocco. And even though uh, I think the production, the, the the shooting actually was about only about six or seven days over schedule. Um, he was able to get everything that he wanted um, as planned for this for this production. And I, I mean, there were some, uh, there were a few scenes and a few shots that he wasn't able to get. But uh, the sense that I got is that uh, the urgency of making this film actually contributed to uh, what he wanted to achieve on the screen. You know, the, the urgency of, of, of some of the uh, scenes themselves uh, was almost reflected, if not propelled, by by the uh, way in which the filmmaking, the, the guerrilla-style filmmaking, uh, was proceeding yeah. in Morocco. You think it's a blessing to know what God wants? I'll tell you what he wants. He wants to push me over. Can't he see what's inside of me? All my sins. We all sin. Not my sins. I'm a liar. A hypocrite. I'm afraid of everything. I don't ever tell the truth. I don't have the courage. When I see a woman, I blush and look away. I want her, but I don't take her for God. And that makes me proud. And then my pride ruins Magdalene. I don't steal, I don't fight, I don't kill, not because I don't want to, but because I'm afraid. I want to rebel against you, against everything, against against God, but I'm afraid. You want to know who my mother and father are? You want to know who my God is? Fear. You look inside me and that's all you'll find. When I read your book and I read about the initial plans to make it in 83, you can't help but think <clears throat> how different would it have been with an Aidan Quinn as opposed to a Willem Dafoe. I think that Willem Dafoe adds such a – I mean he's an exotic actor, and, and it gives the character a certain edge, I think, and a fascination uh, just by nature of having a face like that. Uh, on screen, right. I think. Was, did Willem Dafoe have any trepidation in, in getting involved in this project, or was he as gung ho as Scorsese from the outset? Uh, from the from the outset, he was gung ho. He he wanted to do this. He wanted to work with Scorsese. Um, the prospect of playing Jesus um, was didn't seem to be even particularly intimidating to him. Mm. Um, he, uh, he he recognized that he had a responsibility for that role, uh, not just to the material, but to the notion that uh, the character represents, uh, you know, a very important religious figure <laughs> who is uh, worshipped by hundreds of millions of people around the world. But he felt like he didn't really have uh, to, uh, you know, match any previous portrayals or he, he didn't want to be influenced by by any of the imagery 
iconography, uh, any, any of the narrative portrayals from uh, earlier films or, or, or other media. And uh, he just wanted to understand the character and, and what the character was trying to uh, to do in the film. And so he, he, he spent a lot of time just uh, doing a little bit of his own Bible study, as he mentioned it to me. And he also read some works on... Uh, on the concept of forgiveness that uh, Scorsese had given him. I think forgiveness became a little bit more of an emphasized theme in the film, uh, certainly compared to the Kazanzakis novel. But I think that uh, uh, Defoe was, uh, you know, embracing this, this uh, role. It is accomplished! Another anecdote that I, that I thought was incredible in your book, the last shot of the film, where the film kind of flashes, flashes to white. It is that wasn't a, a, a post-production choice. That was actually that shot. It, the it flashed the negative. The light seeped into the the real, the the camera, didn't it? Yeah. Um... They're, yeah, they were shooting the very last uh, shot of the film, and um, as the uh, the film magazine was be- being taken down from the camera, uh, there was some uh, light leakage, and uh, so what you see in in the very last seconds of the film, uh, the, the sort of uh, color that's that's fluttering and, and, and goes to white is is actually uh, a, a total accident. <laughs> It uh, was not designed to be that way. Scorsese felt like uh, I think there was more than one take, but uh, he felt like this was this was a fitting into the film. Um, in some way, for him, it suggested uh, the resurrection to follow. But again, you have to understand the reason why there's this reaction against the story or the picture is because um, uh, these are, of course, very personal views. This is I find interpreting. Jesus through Kazantzakis onto film by way of Paul Trader and myself and Jay Cox who also did some of the writing and uh, finally Willem Dafoe we're uh, we're interpreting Jesus on a very one-to-one level in a very personal way it's it's uh, as I said before it's my own way it's it's like making a very personal film and uh, uh, it seems that to anyone who really believes fully and solely in the errancy of the Bible that one cannot deter one word from the Bible from what is written, would have, would have, understandably, would have a problem with this, with this interpretation, with this approach. At a certain point in time, uh, Universal did assign some bodyguards to protect Scorsese, um, and they also guard him at his apartment. Um, Scorsese obviously began to do some interviews by July, uh, in anticipation of the film's release, including memorable appearance on ABC's uh, Nightline program in which he was speaking. He was on the show with Donald Wildman, who was uh, one of the main leaders of the opposition to The Last Temptation release. When they were preparing for the release uh, months and months in advance, they the studio brought on kind of a liaison <clears throat> to work between the studio and the religious community, kind of to gauge the community's concerns and assuage any trepidations they might have about the film. Was that a, uh, obviously a calculated move, but did, did, to what extent did that work? Yeah, the studio, um, I suppose, took its cue from the problems that was faced by Paramount five years earlier. Um in being totally unprepared for a, uh, a harsh negative reaction from the conservative Christian community. And the studio felt if they were to engage the services of a public relations consultant who specializes in um, religious-themed films, particularly um, Christian market films, and uh, sort of bring this consultant into the fold uh, share with the consultant some some aspects of of the movie being in final post production development and and also serve as a bridge to the evangelical community, mm-hmm. so that uh, he would 
this is Tim Penland was the name of this Christian consultant. Penland would then be able to show the um, uh, some of the leaders of the Christian community, not only those that might be predisposed to uh, not like the film, but uh, others as well, uh, show the film to them eventually before it gets released so that they have an idea of exactly what the film contains and be able to hear from the director himself about uh, his motives for making the film. So, uh, yeah, it was it was an effort by the studio to try to um, um, tamp down any potential negative reaction based on um, rumor or, you know, baseless rumor uh, in advance and uh, sort of pave the way for a, a little bit smoother reception um, by uh, by the religious communities uh, of the country. So, so, so that was the intent. At the same time, the studio hired another public relations consultant whose job it was to uh, to try to um, understand the Christians and you know blunt any possible um, actions that might result that might threaten the film itself. So Universal had two different consultants that were working on the film. They didn't really have any communication with each other, and in some ways they were sort of working across purposes. So that was an interesting yeah. part of the of the publicity effort for the film. And interesting too, I think the public relations expert you're talking about, he's the, he's the one that when he first took the assignment, and I I think he read the material, his reaction was, "What are you crazy? Why is Universal making yeah. <laughs> making this? They have no idea what they're getting themselves into." Right, right. Yeah, Josh Barron right. was the other consultant, and uh, he had. Um, a lot of experience with working in crisis communications, and he's a former Buddhist monk. Um, he did know something about comparative religion, and uh, he understood that this was incendiary material to uh, to uh, Christian believers, and uh, that it would cross many, many lines for them. And so, yeah, he, he frankly thought that the studio had made a mistake in making the film in the first place. Um, yeah. But uh, he was—he uh, was predicting that uh, there could be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of uh, protesters at the studio's doorstep. That they'd have to defend motion picture theaters. That uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, very difficult, untoward things could happen that might threaten um, MCA, the parent company itself. Now this was a, I got this from an interview with Josh Barron and he was telling me this in retrospect and I I, I think I believe him <laughs> but I don't know you know to what degree you know all these things were being all these calamitous events were being predicted by Josh Barron in uh, January February of 1988 you know months before the film was released but uh, he clearly had a sense though that the film was uh, much more uh, controversial than the studio thought. And uh, it was his yeah. job to start preparing preparing the studio for that. Uh, and the studio actually uh, they released the film early, with with little advance notice to to kind of get a jump start on any potential protests. Yeah, um, the uh, original release date was in September. Um, it was going to be shown at the New York Film Festival, and then uh, have kind of a platform rollout release. But during the summer of 1988, uh, things really escalated in terms of uh, Christian radio stations broadcasting um, you know, uh, information about, um, about the film, about the danger that opposed to Christian beliefs and values. Uh, quite a few of the uh, televangelists on their TV and radio programs were also inveighing against the film. Um, uh, a man named Bill Bright, who was head of the Christian Crusade for Christ, I mean, <laughs> the Campus Crusade for Christ, was uh, uh, offering to buy the film from uh, Universal and uh, burn all the print copies. Um, wow. There was just a number of really outrageous... Um, uh, and, and then there was R.L. Heimers, who was a, uh, a local minister in Los Angeles who um, launched some anti-Semitic attacks on uh, Sid Scheinberg and Lou Wasserman in connection with the film. So there was just a lot of uh, um, 
danger that the studio was wait, waiting into, and uh, they thought that uh, it was the better part of Valor to go ahead and release the film as early as they possibly could. Just as soon as Scorsese uh, was able to lock in uh, the film, and they were able to produce uh, prints in order to get the film distributed. So uh, they moved the release date up to August uh, 12th, I believe, and... Uh, mm-hmm. There was never really intended to be much advertising for the film. Um, there were never any television ads that ran for uh, Last Temptation. There was there were some uh, trailers that uh, were shown in theaters, but not that many. But um, yeah, it, yeah, it, it was released very quickly, and uh, uh, Josh Barron, uh, who was again helping develop the crisis communications for the film, realized that. With uh, this great hurry in getting the film out, they had to make sure that theaters were protected. And so yeah. he hired a team of, of field crisis people to go out and uh, sort of uh, mediate between the police and the protesters and theater owners and uh, just try to make sure that the film was released with as little potential for injury or property damage as possible. The religious right, um, they saw this going back to 88 when you have uh, the burgeoning of televangelism and and that whole movement but they they saw this as an opportunity somehow and an outreach opportunity based on outrage uh, of this film yeah they saw it as a way to um reclaim some of their lost legitimacy um the release of last temptation came really just on the heels of some embarrassing scandals in the uh, evangelical world. Um, This seems like such ancient history now, but um, Mm. Jim Baker, who was head of the uh, PTL organization, Praise the Lord organization, had a uh, sexual scandal. Same thing with Jimmy Swaggart. Oral Roberts was also mired in controversy with some of his statements. And uh, so... And also at the end of the Reagan era, um, there was a feeling among certain um, leaders in the conservative Christian community that Reagan really had not delivered on some of the promises that um, he had made to them, both privately and publicly, when he first ran for president in 1980. So they were feeling a little bit dispirited, and uh, in 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 the wake of some of these scandals um fundraising suffered um you know poor public image often results in uh issues concerning the support of their causes and so they looked upon last temptation um i don't know if you would you know say this is a a, a, a cynical attitude or not but they saw last temptation as a way to help rebuild their membership lists to get people energized, to get them enthusiastic, and to ultimately um, uh, contribute more to the coffers of some of these organizations. And th- that is what happened. Um, yeah. American Family Association increases membership list uh, significantly as a result of making Last Temptation of Christ the target and uh, encouraging people to uh, to 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 uh, become members and receive newsletters so they can you know hear the latest news about Last Temptation and you know where to write to to make their views known and so forth. So it was it was a big money maker for some of those organizations. Yeah, you hear about uh, people say that uh, all press is good press and ultimately controversy is only beneficial to your product because it it's extra exposure and it makes more people curious about it using last temptation as a case study. Is that valid? I mean, what what, was the controversy ultimately helpful to the film? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, (laughs) the empirical data bear out that uh, it, it actually drew record audiences in the first two or three weeks when it opened in some of the major markets in the United States, particularly some cities that, um, were uh, a little bit more, um, I guess you could say, had had a more liberal cultural climate like Seattle, San Francisco, Minneapolis, New York, etc. Um, but after the first few weeks, um, the box office performance declined, 
and last mutation just barely made back its its production costs from from domestic receipts. And it it's been speculated that uh, there are a lot of people who um, basically decide not to see last temptation because of the controversy. Uh, they didn't want to be hassled by protesters, or they they had heard certain things about the film that um, uh, made them think that it was uh, disrespectful uh, to Christianity and that it would be offensive to their own sensibilities. So, um, you know, I don't know. It, it's kind of a mixed picture. Um, uh, the film has had a very long life in uh, VHS, you know, DVD, Blu-ray, other formats, and actually did quite well uh, internationally. It made about $20 million, $20 to $25 million overseas, even though it was censored in about 12 countries. But... Uh, um, in, in this case, it, it's hard to say because it's such an unusual uh, circumstance. Um, yeah. The, the film was released in only about 140 theaters in the United States. I mean, and, and it grossed a little over eight million, which is yes. uh, a great gross for such a limited release. I think that's right. I mean, just think about that for a moment. 140 theaters. <laughs> I mean, and this was over a span of uh, four or five months. It was released in August, and its its uh, its time at first run in theaters had ended by December '88 or January '89. And uh, I mean, even in the uh, 1980s, um, a wide release was probably about a thousand theaters. So. Yeah. yeah, that they, you know, chose very carefully where Last Temptation would be released, and there are some theater chains that uh, just decided we're not going to book Last Temptation at all in any of our markets. Um, uh, the one that was most significant was a chain at the time called General Cinema, which was uh, one of the top uh, exhibitors in the country, and uh, the head of General Cinema was being almost. Uh, begged by by Universal to at least look at the film, to, to do an exhibitor screening of the film, but they refused to even look at the film. And so oh. that was that was a big blow to the uh, exhibition pro- prospects of the film. But well, yeah, the uh, theaters, that's pretty... the th- theaters undergoing theaters undergoing bomb threats and and, and protests and uh, it, it it's not a very appealing <laughs> prospect <laughs> for a lot of theater owners. I would I would think. And but you said yeah, that the studio's yeah. prof, profit on the film was really hampered by just the the cost of placing security in in all of these theaters. Even if it was just 140 theaters, it was still a hefty price tag. Well, that's true. Uh, Universal still had to pay about a million dollars just for the uh, security and the special handling of the film, um, and uh, that that was a lot of money uh, because they had to hire yeah. off-duty police. They had to finance um, uh, ways to protect the theater in terms of barricades, and you know there there was the advanced team, uh, the field crisis team that was sent out to uh, various theaters for weeks on end. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of money that was spent on security. And uh, I think that uh, theater chains like General Cinema just decided that we don't want to alienate our customer base for this one film. Um, and, you know, security was also a consideration. They didn't want to have their theaters bombed. <laughs> and uh, yeah. they, they didn't. They didn't want to jeopardize uh, people going in to see other movies, you know, at the multiplex. While Last Temptation was showing, I mean, there, there were a lot of considerations there. Well, despite this heated controversy, or more likely because of the heated controversy, The Last Temptation of Christ opened to capacity crowds this weekend, grossing close to half a million dollars. Is the film blasphemy or an affirmation of faith? Today you're going to hear from the leaders of the movement against the film and those who openly support uh, a Christian's right to see this film and everybody else's right to see it. First, meet one of the film's leading critics. The high-profile evangelical leaders that actually saw the film. By and large, would you say they uh, understood its point of view and, and, and... they didn't see it as a as a film worthy of scandal, uh, or or not. 
by and large, uh, they um, they didn't like the film. Some of them hated it. I, I spoke to some of the people that um, actively protested the film, that organized protests, that were talk show hosts on Christian radio stations, that urged people not to go see the film. They did go see um, readings of the film. And I don't think they understood the perspective of the movie as intended by uh, Scorsese and Kazantzakis before him and Schrader. I, mm-hmm. I don't think they, they understood what, what the film was, was trying to do. The film, um, one of your questions was, uh, was this uh, you know, seen as a, as a faith-affirming film? Um, you know, it, it does all the things that are described in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus' uh, ministry, he performs miracles in the film. He, he, uh, he dies on the cross. I mean, the, the basic template of Jesus' life is depicted in the film, but you know, what's radically different about the film is that uh, Jesus is relatable. He has doubts. He has uncertainties. He, he is tempted you know, in, in a variety of ways, in very palpable ways. And uh, he does uh, initially renounce his mission on the cross, but just for an instant. Uh, he, he, he is tempted for an instant. And it's that last 40 minutes of the film that, is, uh, very dis- that was very disturbing to these Christian leaders, um, yeah. even though it was portrayed as a, uh, as a hallucination, if you will. But uh, the notion that Jesus would... Uh, would marry Mary Magdalene and later on her sisters. He would he would help propagate children. He would uh, die an old man uh, without ever having uh, fulfilled his destiny as a savior to mankind. That was totally anathema. And uh, yeah. to to these people that that saw the film that. Uh, that up to that point had been basing their opinions on what they had heard about the script. But once they saw the film, uh, at least the ones I talked to and, you know, from my research, they didn't really change their mind about the film. And they still don't. Um, I, I mean, it, it's obviously not a hot-button film anymore, but uh, I don't think with time there's been any softening of, uh, of opposition to the film among those who initially opposed it. When it all boils down, it, it's really the sex scene with Mary Magdalene that was right. the clincher for for most people that refused to see it. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, there are some other issues, uh, such as uh, Harvey Cottel as Judas entering into a uh, co-conspirator uh, arrangement, you know, arranging the events leading up to the betrayal. And the crucifixion that, uh, I mean, in the Gospels, Judas is one of Jesus' disciples. But he's portrayed there as being, you know, the great betrayer. But, of course, in the film, uh, uh, he and Judas are lifelong friends. And uh, Jesus actually has to persuade Judas to to carry this out. Uh, So that that was also uh, something that... uh, some of the more conservative uh, critics felt was out of bounds, but yeah. I think you're right. I think it was the, it was the sexuality in the film. Yeah, it always comes back to to sex. Just whenever you see a controversy somewhere, it's always somehow about sex. Uh, the the incident in France, uh, you know, they we had a lot of threats here in the states, but uh, some of those threat, threats were actually carried out destruction in, in in France. Yeah, there were um many theaters in France that were firebombed. Um and then there was one in Paris. Uh, this happened across the country from the south of France um up to Paris and uh, other surrounding cities, but there was a uh, theater I think it was the Saint Michel in uh Paris that was uh, firebombed and several people were injured. So yeah, it was it was quite serious there. Wow. I think think um, I think France got a France got a stronger reaction had a stronger reaction uh, because um, there was probably 
a little bit more of a connection to the kind of protests that are happening in the United States and some of the same issues. Um, there was a really strong conservative party in France. Uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen was the uh, the leader of this of this uh, political party, and uh, quite a few of its uh, um, followers or partisans um, had very strong anti-abortion views. And so this all kind of tied into sort of a cultural war atmosphere in France, separate from but very much related to what was happening in the United States. You didn't see that kind of reaction in other Catholic countries, heavily Catholic countries in Europe. Uh, There was hardly any word of protest in Italy or in Spain. Um, There was some violent reaction in Greece, um, but certainly, you know, France was the epicenter, no question about that. Yeah. Where do you think 30 years after the release of that movie, and and we've had so many more great Scorsese movies since, where do you think Last Temptation fits in his legacy? I mean, uh, what categorization will it hold? Mm, That's a good question. I... I mean, there, there's a subset of his films that are um, overtly spiritual films. I mean, we were talking earlier about Boxcar Bertha, how symbolic imagery and uh, some subtextual references of uh, religion are woven into the film. But, but the film is really not about that. But, you know, Kundun, uh, the most recent film, Silence, and Last Temptation constitute this this interesting subset of films that, uh, they, and they're always very personal projects. They, they they're always films that he has to fight to get approved or has to deliver a a commercial hit to a studio in order to in order to have the permission to make films like that. And uh, I don't like my own opinion is that uh, Last Temptation is still a standout. Uh, in mm-hmm. in that group of Scorsese films that have overtly spiritual themes, I, I think it's probably yeah. the film that expresses most directly uh, his own concerns about faith and about how to make moral choices, you know, in in a corrupt world. Um, and uh, I, I think Last Temptation probably has grown in, in critical es- estimation over the years. I. I'm not sure I have a real <laughs> firm basis for saying that, but um, I, th- I think it's looked upon as as a very uh, as 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 a, almost a quintessential uh, spiritual film for Scorsese. Mm-hmm. 